Chapter Ten, Part One, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, The Polar Journey, Part Two, The Beardmore Glacier, Part One. The southern journey involves the most important object of the expedition. One cannot affect to be blind to the situation. The scientific public, as well as the more general public, will gauge the result of the scientific work of the expedition largely in accordance with the success or failure of the main object. With success all roads will be made easy, all work will receive its proper consideration. With failure even the most brilliant work may be neglected and forgotten, at least for a time. Scott. The ponies had dragged twenty-four weekly units of food for four men to some five miles from the bottom of the glacier, but we were late. For some days we had been eating the summit ration, which is the food which should not have been touched until the glacier depot had been laid, and we were still a day's run from the place where this was to be done. It was, of course, the result of the blizzard which no one could have expected in December, usually one of the two most settled months. Still more serious was the deep snow which lay like down upon the surface, and into which we sank commonly to our knees, our sledges digging themselves in until the cross-pieces were ploughing through the drift. Shackleton had fine weather, and found blue ice in the bottom reaches of the glacier, and Scott lamented what was unquestionably bad luck. It was noon of December 10th before we had made the readjustments necessary for man-hauling. We left here pony-meat for man and dog-food, three ten-foot sledges, one twelve-foot sledge, and a good many oddments of clothing and pony gear. We started with three four-man teams, each pulling for these first few miles about five hundred pounds, as follows. One, Scott, Wilson, Oates, Seaman Evans. Two, Lieutenant Evans, Atkinson, Wright, Lashley. Three, Bowers, Cherry Garrard, Crean, Keown. The team numbered two, had been man-hauling together some days, and two members of it, Lieutenant Evans and Lashley, had already been man-hauling since the breakdown of the second motor at Corner Camp. It was certainly not so fit as the other two. In addition to these three sledges, the two dog-teams, which had been doing splendid work, were carrying six hundred pounds of our weight, as well as the provisions for the lower glacier depot, weighing two hundred pounds. It began to look as if Amundsen had chosen the right form of transport. The gateway is a gap in the mountains, a side door, as it were, to the great tumbled glacier. By lunch we were on the top of the divide, but it took six hours of the hardest hauling to cover the mile which formed the rise. As long as possible we stuck to ski, but we reached a point at which we could not move the sledges on ski. Once we had taken them off we were up to our knees, and the sledges were ploughing the snow which would not support them. But our gear was drying in the bright sunshine, our bags were spread out at every opportunity, and the great jagged cliffs of red granite were welcome to the eyes after four hundred and twenty-five statute miles of snow. The gateway is filled by a giant snowdrift, which has been formed between Mount Hope on our left and the mainland on our right. From Shackleton's book we gathered that the Beardmore was a very bad glacier indeed. Once on the top of the divide we lunched, and we descended in the evening, camping at midnight on the edge of the glacier, which we found, as we had feared, covered with soft snow, which was so deep as to give no indication whatever of the hard ice which Shackleton found here. We camped in considerable drift and a blizzard wind, which is still blowing, and I hope will go on, for every hour it is sweeping away inches of this soft powdery snow, into which we have been sinking all day. 
Before setting out on December the 11th, we rigged up the lower glacier depot, three weekly summit units of provisions, two cases of emergency biscuit, which was the ration for three weekly units, and two cans of oil. These provisions were calculated to carry the three returning parties as far as the southern barrier depot. We also left one can of spirit, used for lighting the primus, one bottle of medical brandy, and certain spare and personal gear not required. On the sledges themselves we stowed eighteen weekly summit units, besides the three ready bags containing the ration for the current week, and the complement of biscuit, for this was ten cases, in addition to the three boxes of biscuit which the three parties were using. Then there were eighteen cans of oil, with two cans of lighting spirit, and a little additional Christmas fare which Bowers had packed. Every unit of food was worked out for four men for one week. During this time of deep snow, the sledge meters would not work, and we were compelled to estimate the distance marched each day. It has been a tremendous slog, but I think a most hopeful day. Before starting, it took us about two hours to make the depot, and then we got straight into the midst of the big pressure. The dogs, with ten cases of biscuit, came behind and pulled very well. We soon caught sight of a big boulder, and Bill and I roped up and went over to it. It was a block of very coarse granite, nearly nice, with large crystals of quartz in it, rusty outside and quite pinkish when chipped, and with veins of quartz running through it. It was a vast thing to be carried along on the ice, and looked very typical of the rock round. Instead of keeping under the great cliff where Shackleton made his depot, we steered for Mount Kiffin, that is, towards the middle of the glacier, until lunch, when we had probably done about two or three miles. There was a crevasse wherever we went, but we managed to pull on ski and had no one down, and the deep snow saved the dogs. The dog teams were certainly running very big risks that morning. They turned back after lunch, having been brought on far longer than had been originally intended, for, as I have said, they were to have been back at Hut Point before now, and their provision allowance would not allow of further advance. Perhaps we rather overestimated the dogs' capacities, when Bowers wrote, "'The dogs are wonderfully fit, and will rush Mears and Dimitri back like the wind. I expect he'll be nearly back by Christmas, as they will do about thirty miles a day.' But Mears told us when we got back to the hut that the dogs had by no means had an easy journey home. Now, however, with a whirl and a rush, they were off on the homeward trail. I could not see them, being snow-blind, but heard the familiar orders as the last of our animal transport left us. Our difficulties during the next four days were increased by the snow-blindness of half the men. The evening we reached the glacier, Bowers wrote, "'I'm afraid I am going to pay dearly for not wearing goggles yesterday when piloting the ponies. My right eye has gone bung, and my left one is pretty dicky.' If I am in for a dose of snow-glare, it will take three or four days to leave me, and I'm afraid I am in the ditch this time. It is painful to look at this paper, and my eyes are fairly burning, as if someone had thrown sand into them. And then, I have missed my journal for four days, having been enduring the pains of hell with my eyes, as well as doing the most back-breaking work I have ever come up against. I was as blind as a bat, and so was Keon in my team. Cherry pulled alongside me with Crean and Keon behind, by sticking plasters over my glasses, except one small central spot, I shut off most light, and could see the points of my ski, but the glasses were always fogged with perspiration, and my eyes kept on streaming water which cannot be wiped off in the march, as a ski stick is held in each hand, and so heavy were our weights. We had now taken on the weights which had been on the dog-sledges, that if any of the pair slacked a hand even, the sledge stopped. 
It was all we could do to keep the sledge moving for short spells of a few hundred yards, the whole concern sinking so deeply into the soft snow as to form a snowplough. The starting was worse than pulling, as it required from ten to fifteen desperate jerks on the harness to move the sledge at all. Many others were also snow-blind, caused partly by the strain of the last march of the ponies, partly by not having realised that now we were day-marching, the sun was more powerful and more precautions should be taken. The cocaine and zinc sulphate tablets which we had were excellent, but we also found that our tea-leaves, which had been boiled twice and could otherwise have been thrown away, relieved the pain if tied into some cotton and kept pressed against the eyes. The tannic acid in the tea acted as an astringent. A snow-blind man can see practically nothing anyhow, and so he is not much worse off if a handkerchief is tied over his eyes. Beardmore Glacier. Just a tiny note to be taken back by the dogs. Things are not so rosy as they might be, but we keep our spirits up, and say the luck must turn. This is only to tell you that I find I can keep up with the rest as well as of old. Then, for the first time, we were left with our full loads of eight hundred pounds a sledge. Even Bowers asked Scott whether he was going to try it without relaying. That night Scott's diary runs, It was a very anxious business when we started after lunch, about four-thirty. Could we pull our full loads or not? My own party got away first, and, to my joy, I found we could make fairly good headway. Every now and again the sledge sank in a soft patch, which brought us up, but we learned to treat such occasions with patience. We got sideways to the sledge and hauled it out, Evans, P.O., getting out of his ski to get better purchase. The great thing is to keep the sledge moving, and for an hour or more there were dozens of critical moments when it all but stopped, and not a few when it brought up altogether. The latter were very trying and tiring. Altogether it was an encouraging day, and we reckoned we had made seven miles. Generally it was not Scott's team which made the heaviest weather these days, but on December 12th they were in greater difficulties than any of us. It was indeed a gruelling day, for the surface was worse than ever, and many men were snow-blind. After five hours' work in the morning we were about half a mile forward. We were in a sea of pressure, the waves coming at us from our starboard now, the distance between the crests not being very great. We could not have advanced at all had it not been for our ski. On foot one sinks to the knees, and if pulling on a sledge to half-way between knee and thigh. On December 13th, the sledges sank in over twelve inches, and all the gear, as well as the thwartship pieces, were acting as brakes. The tugs and heaves we enjoyed, and the number of times we had to get out of our ski to upright the sledge were trifles compared with the strenuous exertion of every muscle and nerve to keep the wretched drag from stopping when once under way, and then it would stick, and all the starting operations had to be gone through afresh. We did perhaps half a mile in the forenoon. Anticipating a better surface in the afternoon, we got a shock. Teddy Evans led off half an hour earlier to pilot away, and Captain Scott tried some fake with his spare runners. He lashed them under the sledge to prevent the cross-pieces ploughing the snow. That involved about an hour's work. We had to continually turn our runners up to scrape the ice off them, for in these temperatures they are liable to get warm and melt the snow on them, and that freezes into knobs of ice, which act like sandpaper or spikes on a pair of skates. We bust off second full of hope, having done so well in the forenoon, but pride goeth before a fall. We stuck ten yards from the camp, and nine hours later found us little more than half a mile on. I have never seen a sledge sink so.
I have never pulled so hard, or so nearly crushed my inside into my backbone, by the everlasting jerkin with all my strength on the canvas band round my unfortunate tummy. We were all in the same boat, however. I saw Teddy struggling ahead and Scott astern, but we were the worst off, as the leading team had topped the rise, and I was too blind to pick out a better trail. We fairly played ourselves out that time, and finally had to give it up and relay. Halving the load, we went forward about a mile with it, and, leaving that lot, went back for the remainder. So done were my team that we could do little more than pull the half-loads. Teddy's team did the same, and though Scott's did not, we camped practically the same time, having gone over our distance three times. Mount Kiffin was still ahead of us, to the left. We seemed as if we could never come up with it. Tomorrow Scott decided that if we could not move our full loads, we would start relaying systematically. It was a most depressing outlook after such a day of strenuous labour. We got soaked with perspiration these days, though generally pulling in vest, pants and windproof trousers only. Directly we stopped we cooled quickly. Two skewers appeared at lunch, attracted probably by the pony flesh below, but it was a long way from the sea for them to come. On Thursday, December 14th, Scott wrote, Indigestion and the soggy condition of my clothes kept me awake for some time last night, and the exceptional exercise gives bad attacks of cramp. Our lips are getting raw and blistered. The eyes of the party are improving, I am glad to say. We are just starting our march with no very hopeful outlook. But we slogged on with much better results. Once into the middle of the glacier we had been steering more or less for the cloud-maker, and by supper to-day we were well past Mount Kiffin, and were about two thousand feet up, after an estimated run of eleven or twelve statute miles. But the most cheering sign was that the blue ice was gradually coming nearer the surface. At lunch it was two feet down, and at our supper-camp only one foot. In pitching our tent, Crean broke into a crevasse which ran about a foot in front of the door, and there was another at Scott's door. We threw an empty oil-can down, and it echoed for a terribly long time. We spent the morning of December 15th crossing a maze of crevasses, though they were well bridged. I believe all these lower reaches of the glacier are badly crevassed, but the thick snow and our ski kept us from tumbling in. There was a great deal of competition between the teams, which was perhaps unavoidable, but probably a pity. This day Bower's diary records, Did a splendid bust off on ski, leaving Scott in the lurch, and eventually overhauling the party which had left some time before us. All morning we kept up a steady, even swing, which was quite a pleasure. But the same day Scott wrote, Evans is now decidedly the slowest unit, though Bowers is not much faster. We keep up and overhaul either without difficulty. Bowers' team considered themselves quite good, but both teams were satisfied of their own superiority. As a matter of fact, Scott's was the faster, as it should have been, for it was certainly the heavier of the two. It was a very bad light all day, but after lunch it began to get worse, and by five o'clock it was snowing hard and we could see nothing. We went on for nearly an hour, steering by the wind and any glimpse of Sastrugi, and then very reluctantly Scott camped. It looks better now. The surface is much harder and more windswept, and, as a rule, the ice is only six inches underneath. We are beginning to talk about Christmas. We get very thirsty these days in the warm temperatures. We shall feel it farther up when the cold gets into our open pores and sunburnt hands and cracked lips. I am plastering some skin on mine tonight. Our routine now is turn out 5.30, lunch 1 and camp at 7, and we get a short eight hours sleep. 
but we are so dead tired we could sleep half into the next day. We get about nine and a half hours march. Tea at lunch, a positive godsend. We are raising the land to the south well, and are about 2,500 feet up. Latitude about 84 degrees, 8 minutes south. End of chapter 10, part 1